I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. When you hear the Tchaikovsky Pathétique, does it make you grieve and then be furious? No, it makes you feel something about music. So these pieces, they really strike people in a very powerful way. In this episode, I speak with composer and conductor Christopher Roundtree and Getty curator Nancy Perloff about the avant-garde music and performance phenomenon called Fluxus. Fluxus was an international community of experimental composers, performers, and poets active in the 1960s and 70s. Among the artists most identified with Fluxus were Lamont Young, Ben Patterson, George Brecht, Yoko Ono, and George Machunas. Although he never identified with it, composer John Cage was deeply influential in Fluxus's development through the series of experimental composition classes he taught at the New School for Social Research in New York City. There he explored the principles of chance and indeterminacy, which proved to be of great interest to Fluxus artists. I recently met with composer Christopher Roundtree and Getty curator Nancy Perloff to look at and talk about some of the Fluxus materials held by the Getty Research Institute. Occasion was a survey of Fluxus performances curated by Christopher Roundtree for the LA Philharmonic in collaboration with the GRI. I'm in the Special Collections Seminar Room of the Getty Research Institute with Getty curator Nancy Perloff and Christopher Roundtree, Los Angeles-based conductor and founder of the New Music Chamber Group, Wild Up. Christopher and Nancy, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. Christopher, let's start with you. Why Fluxus and why now? You know, any moment in history that is as tumultuous as the one that we're currently in, I would say it needs an anarchy against it. And I think any art form that rattles against power has a moment in times like these. Did it feel that way at the Walt Disney Concert Hall when you were performing? It's a good question. Doing Fluxus on a stage that says Wells Fargo on it, or in a hall that says British Petroleum on the front, is really a strange thing to be doing. And you have to approach it a certain way because you know you're in these places of capitalism. Who had the idea to come up with Fluxus as a festival now? A few years ago, I spoke with Chad Smith, who's the COO of the LA Phil, and he was uh, previously the head of artistic at the LA Phil. And I was showing Chad a piece that I made for a violinist named Jenny Ko, and I made it a couple years ago. It was a um, three-minute violin piece, or indeterminate duration, but I think about three minutes. It was just a love note written on a napkin, and then a song that I sang into my phone. And what I said to Jenny was, here's the recording of the song, and here's the love note, and you kind of would perform them both at the same time, or adjacent to one another in any order. And she said to me, that's not music. And I said to Chad that, and Chad said, oh, it's Fluxus. This is Fluxus. And I said, well, you know, that's flattering. Um, I love those guys, but you know, I need to research about Fluxus to really, I wonder if it's Fluxus. For sure, I'm inspired by that. And so we started this conversation. So, so Nancy, let's bring you in. Um, what is Fluxus? Fluxus is an anti-art movement. It began possibly in the late 50s, but I actually think more early 60s. George Machunas, who was Lithuanian-American, uh, is often considered the founder 
of Fluxus. He wrote a manifesto in 1963 in which he defied the bourgeoisie. He called it bourgeois sickness. He wanted to promote a revolutionary flood and tide in art and promote non-art reality. The anti-art part, um, a lot of writers and critics have argued harkens back to Dada. That, that in many ways, Fluxus is a neo-Dada movement in its anarchic practices, in its focus on performance. Where was George Machinus? Was he in New York? Was he in Los Angeles? What's the link between Los Angeles and Fluxus? Fluxus was characterized by its international yeah. base, really. Yeah. Machunas, I think, was originally in Europe, but you may want to take this up. I, I mean, I think we pretty much view John Cage as he said to himself, well, maybe I'd be the uncle of Fluxus, but don't call me the father or grandfather. So we think of Cage as kind of, in a way, spawning Fluxus, and he was born in Eagle Rock. So we, we can take that. I think of Cage as a New York artist, for sure. Um, but just to know that he was like, he lived down the street from where I live, um, there's something there. There's something that feels close about that. Right now, LA is such a mecca for contemporary art and for, um, I think, for conceptual art particularly the past 40 years. And so something about this place has um, experimentalism in, it, in its bones in a way, you know, like in the earth, there's experimentalism here. So for sure, I think Fluxus belongs here. Well, tell us again, get us back to George Machunas and the, and the manifesto and the link to Cage. Were they at all close to each other as friends or not, allies? No, not so far as I know. Um, Cage, I think, is most closely connected with Fluxus because he actually taught a number of artists who participated in his famous class at the New School for Social Research. He began teaching there in 56. This is his course description in 58, and he called the course Experimental Composition. And he writes, Experimental Music, a course in musical composition with technological, musicological, and philosophical aspects open to those with or without previous training. Whereas conventional theories of harmony, counterpoint, and musical form are based on the pitch and frequency components of sound, how high or how low a sound is, this course offers, and I think this is the most important, problems and solutions in the field of composition based on other components of sound, colon, duration, timbre, amplitude, and morphology. The course also encourages inventiveness. Okay, let me read a little Flora. bit from the Fluxus Manifesto, because that'll get back to Chris and his contextualizing the, the Fluxus in terms of the politics of the movement. Mm. So this is 1963, it's called Fluxus Manifesto, and it's calling upon its readers to, quote, purge the world of bourgeois sickness, intellectual, professional, and commercialized culture, promote a revolutionary flood and tide in art, promote non-art reality, to be grasped by all peoples, not only critics, dilettantes, and professionals, fuse the cadres of cultural, social, and political revolutionaries into united front and action. George Machunas took these copies of the manifesto and he threw it into the audience at the Festum Fluxorum Fluxus in Dusseldorf. That kind of language and that kind of aggressive action doesn't sound to me like Cage, at least at the moment in which Cage is writing his description of his course, which seems to me precisely about the mechanical aspects of music. Mm -hmm. Chris, how do you relate the two? When you're describing it like that, that's so right on. It seems so against Cage. And it seems so purposely polemic. And Cage is that as well. But Cage kind of does it in this um, Taoist way or this Zen way. Like we'll put something here and we'll all observe it. 
And I think with Fluxus, there's so much action, um, radical action against and away, you know. And when I think of them, like if I was to have a dance piece called Fluxus and a dance piece called Cage, I think one would be, you know, uh, defined by stillness and one would be defined by uh, kind of radical motions. And however, they're at the same thing, you know, which is questioning the art form itself, I think. So we have a score of John Cage's here, Music Walk, written in 1958 for one or more pianist. And we have it because the Getty has part of the archive of the pianist and composer David Tudor. Tell us about this composition and maybe we can hear a bit of it too. Yeah, so Music Walk, performers share a single piano and may also play radios. Uh, 1958, this is an important year because according to one of the really eminent scholars, and I endorse this, this is no longer a score. What we're looking at here is no longer a score. Describe it to us. I mean, it's, it's made of plastic and it's got typed lettering and numbers on it. Exactly. So he uses these transparencies. He loved using these. What you've got here are the instructions what the pianist and or the radio performers are supposed to do. Basically, it explains that the piece gives the performers 10 sheets, 10 transparencies like that one, with points on them. I don't know how he did them. Are but they arranged by chance on the piece of plastic? No, I would say the chance has more to do with the process of making a score. And that's why what we see here is a tool. It's not a score, it's a tool towards a score. So the transparency that has the five red lines on it is a, a rectangular sheet. And the transparency that has the black dots or points on it is a larger sheet. And so you take, because they're transparencies, you take the five lines and you lay it however you'd like over the dots, and then what is very specific for Cage is that each of these lines represents something different about how you play. So one line is assigned for plucked or muted strings on the piano, one line represents notes played on the keyboard, one line represents internal noises. So that would mean any sound the pianist makes that's inside the piano when you see pianists you know, moving forward and plucking the, the strings. And then the fourth is external noises around the piano. And finally, any auxiliary noises. So the performers have a job to do. And he also has radio sounds that he's And is it only cooking. triggered where the point meets the line going through it? Exactly. And is there a sense of duration of sound, or is it just as long sound last? Well, that's actually a really good question because Cage creates a lot of parameters and a lot of instructions on how to come up with a score. Next to Cage's score or tool for a score, we see David Tudor's notes, uh, lists of instrumentation, and his score for realizing the tool Music Walk by John Cage. We have a set of rectangular sheets with very precise timings. Yeah. And Tudor, in creating the score, assigned timings to each sound and created a piece from that. So the instructions from Cage has here, the, the instrumentation of Music Walk includes a piano, portable radio, air whistle, plectrum, 
Guinea bird whistle, piper whistle, shoe squeaker, goose whistle, wind-up vibrator, metal beater, thick rubber bar, thick flat plastic, water warbler, heavy drumstick, triangular ruler, and a coin. And you can incorporate any of those into the different types of sounds. So those could be auxiliary sounds, like a whistle would be an auxiliary sound. It could be a pluck on the strings. So all of these sounds have originated or come out from the definitions of what these five lines represent in terms of category of sound. What I love about looking at this is this transparency to me, the kind of long one with the lines on it, kind of looks like the neck of a guitar that we're looking through. And then this one kind of looks like a constellation of stars, you know? It does. It's like you put a neck of a guitar over a constellation of stars and you interpret it with this poem that's just a list of materials. And to me, that's just so incredible. And he's put so many rules in these, these instructions that are written out, but they're the kind of rules that they all make a bunch of different boxes and then there's nothing determined in the box. It's like as long as it's in the box, it's right. Here it says at the very end, a performance lasts an agreed upon length of time. Agreed by it's, whom? By the performance. performance. It's amazing. But <laughs> I would also argue that this is very different from Fluxus. If you read through these instructions, they are very precise, yeah. very yeah. specific, and they all have to do with musical sounds yeah. or related sounds. Yeah. I mean, it's very much about music still, unlike Fluxus. And just to quote Cage, which is a famous quote, but it's important to keep in mind from a year from Monday, he wrote, permission granted, but not to do whatever you want. <laughs> and that's crucial. Okay, so let's listen to a performance of Music Walk by John Cage, and it's performed by John Cage, David Tudor, Ian Underwood, Stuart Dempster, Pauline Oliveros, and mm. Morton Subotnick. And it was at the Tudor Fest. It was performed at the San Francisco Tate Music Center in 1964. That band is like, that's like lit. I want to see that band like play every night. There's certainly a kind of unified isn't quite the right word, but there is a kind of ensemble work going on, right? Where it's not that they alternate between piano, strings, and radio, but it all does come together somehow. And it's all developed by chance, each differently with each performer. Exactly. So each performance is gonna be a different performance, exactly. but it's all yeah. in the same piece. Yeah. That's exactly it. And, and I think just to bring in for a moment the relationship to Fluxus, I've been emphasizing how it differs, but I would say it is similar in its focus on the idea of an event, that a performance is an event. And every event, every performance is different. Well, tell us about Lamont Young. Um, because I want to know if there's a generational change. 
uh, is it a geographical change? Because Lamont Young is from Idaho, I think. Idaho, They're that's right. Idaho, yeah. Yeah, and then he spent a, a bunch of time in Los Angeles uh-huh. um, for school. Um, and Berkeley, where he went to, went yeah. to college. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, Did Lamont Young a... leave one scene in Los Angeles to arrive in another scene yeah. in New York City? Yes, definitely. Definitely. He first was in the jazz scene as a saxophonist in Los Angeles, while also a student at UCLA and studying uh, serial music and atonal music with Leonard Stein. And Leonard Stein had been a disciple of Arnold Schoenberg, so Lamont was really in both worlds. Then he moves to the Bay Area, where his focus is both studying musical composition at Berkeley and working with the dancer Anna Halperin uh, and her workshop, uh, which also involved major figures like Tricia Brown and Yvonne Rayner. And moving to New York, he becomes involved right away with people like Henry Flint, with Yoko Ono, with Terry Jennings, with the loft scene, and then by the early, somewhat later 60s, with uh, Marion Zazila and Sound and Light. Cage was a great fan of Schoenberg, right? Yes, huge. So, I mean, I think that whole common background of the two of them is very interesting, particularly because I think both Lamont and Cage, once they left for New York, never looked back Mm -hmm. and never really thought of themselves as Californian. But I think in different ways, they both really are. All right, well, let's look then at this piece by Lamont Young, which is uh, a number, uh, 2219, dedicated to Henry Flint, dated April 1960. Tell us who Henry Flint was. Henry Flint uh, was an interesting character. He was um, born in North Carolina. He was absolutely an American. He was an avant-garde musician, uh, very interested in jazz, and also very interested in minimal music, did both. And um, I almost want to say, although maybe I'm not being as reverential as I should be, that uh, he was a writer. He fancied himself as a writer as well. writer. Yes. And so in addition to being a musician, uh, he wrote most famously this piece called Concept Art, which is an essay that Lamont Young later published. But they met right when Lamont was just arrived in New York in October 1960. They met right around that time, particularly when Lamont was running this loft series with Yoko Ono where every concert was devoted to a different artist, Lamont invited Henry Flint to one of the Loft concerts, the one that featured Terry Jennings, which is, uh, who was a composer who they both shared a friendship and an admiration for. So Flint went to one of the Loft concerts and then was featured in another one, where it was just a concert by Flint uh, early in the Loft series. And from there, uh, they worked together and shared ideas and ultimately published an essay in the famous an Anthology of Chance this Operations. This is the Young and Henry Flint working mm-hmm. together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just one thing quickly in terms of chronology is that it's pretty sure that Lamont wrote this piece, the integer piece for Henry Flint, when he was in California. Well, well, tell us about him. I mean, I, I think I know a little bit about the, the music scene at the time, but Henry Flint is someone I never have heard of until now. I love his music. Actually, I mean, yesterday I was feeling a little down and I wanted to cook dinner and feel better. Mm. Um, so there's this piece that I always put on 
and it's a piece of Henry Flint, and it's called Violin Strobe from his album uh, Hillbilly Tape Music. And the best way to describe the piece is that it kind of begins the same way that this Lamont Young piece begins, with like one repetitive stark noise. But then Flint keeps filling in the gaps more and more and more and more until we have like a until we have like you know straight sixteenths basically, and then we these little blues licks like start to appear, and all of it it kind of sounds like a guitar, but it is a distorted violin. Having just heard violin strobe, it becomes all the more interesting to go back to Lamont Young's 2219 to Henry Flint, April 1960, for several reasons. One, Henry Flint takes responsibility for influencing this piece through a repeated percussive sound. So this piece, which contains three pages of handwritten performance instructions uh, consists essentially of the forearm hitting the piano however many times the performer decides to hit the piano. So his example... Hitting the same keys. Here's the cluster. He gives you the cluster right here. Calls it the cluster, centered in the keyboard. He has very, very precise descriptions or directions for dynamics, for rhythm, for tempo, for duration. He explains the title, talks about what's difficult in terms of being consistent in the way your forearm hits the keyboard and having the right amount of space between each, what he calls, bang. So essentially what we will hear, we have access to a recording, uh, is Lamont Young playing his Henry Flint, he called it, variably titled piece. A tape of Lamont playing it that he sent to David Tudor in the hope that David Tudor would play that piece. Okay, let's hear it. I love that even here when he's like, you know, here are the pitches I like, he's outlined a tritone. Like even, even here, like what a You're beautiful right. little detail. He's like, also just the devil's interval is the outsides of this chord. To me, that is like also hilarious and meaningful, you know, because there's nothing random about that. Um, One other thing just to note is that in our David Tudor archive, there's a recording of Tudor playing this piece, not on piano, but with a standing gong. Hmm. And so it has a very, very different... Which is interesting, sound. right? He, you, can you imagine getting this note and it's like, the, this is the way that you'll do it. And then he's like, but I think this time we'll do it without pitches. I mean, a gong has pitches, but they're so numerous and so high in the overtone series that our ears hear them as a shimmer instead of pitches. Mm. So I know he knows that he, when he hits a gong, he's like, we're actually hearing a cluster of pitches.
Mm. Just our brain is experiencing tintinabulation and shimmer instead of notes. Mm. Mm. Um, and when mm. we f first started talking about fluxus and cage, and I spent a great deal of time trying to argue that fluxus and cage are not related. I, I just see here that um, the piece that we just listened to and about which we're talking, dedicated to Henry Flint, was published along with Piano Piece for David Tudor, number two and number three, and a number of other scores in an, an anthology of chance operations, which was edited by Lamont Young and designed by George McCunis. So tell us about the relationship between Lamont Young and George McCunis and about Lamont Young and Fluxus, because we've been talking about Lamont Young as if he were close to a disciple of John Cage. Well, you were, you were asking about the, the, an anthology of chance operations. Right. If we go to these next, I think it's a nice way of answering that question, too. So this is a set of pieces by Lamont Young called Composition 1960. These were composed, I mean, October 1960, he's in New York. July 1960, he's still in California. And interestingly, we were looking at David Tudor's score for Music Walk, which was strips of paper graph paper in that case. Here we also have strips, white strips of paper, typewritten, sometimes signed in Lamont's hand in black pen, and some of the performance instructions on these white sheets of paper are very, very small. Like this one is the size of an index card. Uh, and, and what is that? Is that actually the score? or is that's, it? That's the score. So describe yeah. the score to us. So. This is one of my favorite pieces of all time, and it's a piece of Lamont Young uh, called Composition 1960, number seven. And what we're looking at is a small treble clef staff uh, with the notes B and F sharp, with also a tie that seems to kind of go out into infinity. And then the words below say, to be held for a long time, Lamont Young, July 1960. And I think this is like one of the seminal works of this moment in history. Uh, and it also, I love that it's also very small and fits on a little index card. You know, it's like insignificant in terms of its its size, and yet it, it implies infinity in what its musical gesture is. So there's this big series of pieces called Compositions 1960, um, a number of which have been on the LA Phil's Fluxus Festival this year. And um, we have a few more of them actually coming up in June. Well, tell us about this one, number five, and did you have that in the festival? We have it on June 1st. Describe it We're for us. We're very excited about it. So, uh, Compositions 1960, number five, the instructions read, turn a butterfly or any number of butterflies loose in the performance area. When the composition is over, be sure to allow the butterfly to fly away outside. The composition may be any length, but if an unlimited amount of time is available, the doors and windows may be opened before the butterfly is turned loose, and the composition may be considered finished when the butterfly flies away. So that strikes me as an image, as a performance, and as a, in a sense, music uh, as Cage would have it in four minutes, 33 seconds, where the sound is the ambient sound that's happening around you. Is that yeah. right? I mean, for me, when I read this, it just happened to this whole room. Like I was reading it and I saw it in my mind. And that's one of the reasons why I love this piece is because I think when you read it, it happens to you. You know, and so there's this whole part of it that is that is a concept and a scenario. It's like when you read a book and you see the room that the author is describing and you see the events and they affect you as if you're in that room. And I love that this piece does that in in a just profound way. And then there's so many things implied in this, in his instruction here. There's this thing about the freedom of the butterfly 
there's a thing about, well, you know, you should have an unlimited amount of time maybe for this. Even that is an amazing thing to consider, a concert of unlimited time. And, you know, maybe the piece is over when you can't see the butterfly anymore. Yeah. You know, it's like maybe you're in the ocean when you can no longer see the land. When you perform this with the LA Phil, where will it be? Will it so, be in so, Disney so Hall? It, it'll be outside Disney Hall, which is actually a big choice on our part. It's a choice because, first of all, we don't want to do this piece in a way that harms any creature of any size. Um, so the way that you have to do this piece now when you perform it is you have to hire a butterfly wrangler. Um, different butterflies have a different lifespan, but they're all very short. Um, so you have to commission butterflies just for this purpose. So they would not exist and they're grown from larvae and they're flown to you. Then you release them all into a big containment, like a box. And then you're supposed to release them at a very specific temperature so that they're happy. And near vegetation, like milkweed, that they love. And if they don't leave the box, you're designed to tickle them slightly with a feather. And so we're putting up this kind of milkweed and all these other plants that butterflies love, kind of forest outside. We're creating a performance area outside so we're still following the instructions. And one of the things we're really concerned with is like we don't want butterflies to die in this piece. And doing it inside, especially inside a giant cavernous space with high ceilings, we were kind of sure that they would inside Disney Hall. And so it was a big concern. At the same time, I know that it's less revolutionary to do it outside. Mm. And so like, this is one of our big like tightrope mm. walks is how do we do this piece and have it be a revolution seeing a butterfly in a garden. Like I've seen a butterfly in a garden before. Yeah. Um, and so certainly we're not doing it in a garden, but we are making a space that they will be incredibly happy. Mm. And we're releasing them in a way, it's actually in a reverse amphitheater. So if you imagine that the performance will happen kind of up on a pedestal and it's part of Disney Hall where all you see is Geary's architecture and these kind of steel walls and a bunch of cement coming up and our milkweed garden will be at the top of this big set of stairs. The whole audience will look up at it and at this certain moment, which is near, near dusk, it's about an hour before dusk, these boxes will open and fingers crossed the butterflies will ascend and we're doing about 600 butterflies mm, and, and, and the, the wrangler told us about one-third choose not to fly what do so, they do take a bus home i mean we will see what they do but i think there's something about like 200 of the butterflies will remain and then at some point an hour later or something they'll fly away how will you know that the piece is over it's a good you, if you, if you it's can't a good, know they've all flown away i think we have to just That's be like the the duration perhaps will go into the night yeah yeah okay tell us about this piece by lamont young Composition um, 1960, number nine. Okay, one thing I wanted to say both about this piece and about all of these that I think is really important, you're starting to see Lamont Young approach sustained tones, yeah. the idea of long durations. That would be his contribution to minimalism, is works that have very, very long sustained duration. Here, I noticed, as far as duration, with the Henry Flint uh, piece that we were talking about before, he says, you may make it of any duration, but the longer, the better. So I think that's something that we start to see in these pieces. And by 1962, Lamont is writing minimal music with sustained tones. So it's really important. This particular one is extremely evocative. And Describe it to us. Yeah, what we see is, first of all, we see an envelope which we don't see in the other strips of white sheets with typeface. Here we see an envelope that says on its back, 
Composition 1960, number nine, Lamont Young, October 1960. He just arrived in New York. The enclosed score is right side up when the line is horizontal and a little above center. Now, musicians can talk about what that inspires, and I think that would be very interesting to us. What I, as an art historian, just want to point out is that these are very much about conceptual art. I mean, these are concepts, these are images, these are ideas that can be pursued or not within parameters how one wants. But I think conceptual art is certainly playing a role in what Lamont Young is exploring in these scores. But I would also just want to point out, as I think we've seen, that he's incredibly specific about the dates and signing them and then the dedications many of them are dedicated so there is a whole world being created here a kind of exchange with other artists yeah. that's going on that i think is very important well you can see that he's composing almost every day something I mean, it must have been a very productive period in his, in his life. Let's, let's go around the table here and look at this anthology because yeah. this is an important anthology and it brings George McCunis back into the picture. Tell us about that. Basically, this was going to be an issue of a magazine called Beatitude. And Jackson McClough, the poet, and Lamont Young were approached by the editor who said, we want you to do an issue. So Lamont started collecting all of the material. There are 25 contributions altogether. Some are scores, some are texts, some are essays. I've marked some of them. He worked with George Machunas on the design. And the design, people often give George Machunas a hard time and yeah. criticize him and say, well, he was Lamont found him very irritating, to difficult to work with, and so forth. He never had a dime, etc. But look at that. So beautiful. And I do think I actually so beautiful. typed this out because I think it's really important to read the title in full, and it's not so easy to follow. But an anthology of chance operations, this is 1962, concept art, anti-art, I can find it all here, uh, indeterminacy, Plans of action, diagrams, music, dance constructions, improvisation, meaningless work, natural disasters, compositions, mathematics. And Henry Flint was a big mathematics person. That's how he mm -hmm. described himself. And these were in a, a, um, a group of people who were identified as belonging to a group or just a collection of individuals? A collection of individuals, some of whom are clearly Fluxus artists. I mean, George Brecht, whose work we have right there, uh, is a Fluxus artist. I marked something he dedicated to John Cage. I did find it interesting how minimal Cage's Cage's contribution is. Yeah. I had to look and look. Where is Cage's contribution? And all it is is this kind of odd text piece that. And it's an excerpt from a much longer piece. Oh, course. excerpt from. 45. So he's kind of like, I'll give you part of the thing that I've made. Fifty-four. No. Yeah, uh, this is the Henry Flint concept art essay. How influential was it? This this piece. Mm -hmm. I mean, was this... Henry Flint an influential person? This essay was influential. Mm -hmm. This essay I've read about a lot. And influential Reads among to, musicians or visual artists too? or I think among musicians, but I would say more as a kind of conceptual piece, a theoretical piece that 
defends conceptual art and talks about it in terms of structure, language, and mathematics. It's one thing about this uh, anthology itself, the, the physical book, the anthology, yeah. looking at Yoko Ono poetry here, is that while it's meant to be um, minimal, it's dramatically beautifully designed. I mean, it's a work of visual art that uh, is attractive in itself, uh, independent of the content of the words, uh, the evocation of concepts that it might suggest. And I think George Machunas gets a huge amount of credit for that. I mean, yeah. he really did the design. Well, this play with typeface brings to mind mm -hmm. another work here. And Chris, I wonder if you could tell us about this work. Sure. Well, so the, the next piece here is by Ben Patterson. It's a piece called Instruction Number no. 2. And there's a subtitle, which is also the instruction of the piece, which is Please Wash Your Face. The Please Wash Your Face is printed on a towel, it looks like, mm. and the towel is folded and the folds form rectangles, and within each rectangle is a word, beginning with the top, please wash your face. And then there's a piece of soap, it looks like, right there. Which is shaped like an orange slice. And all of this fits into the little plastic box. Which he then, the composer, mailed yes. to friends and yes. performers. Yes. Tell us about the performance of the piece. Yeah, so this was one of the first pieces on the festival. It was the first piece in the season proper. Um, and we did a performance with five different people at the Getty. You know, in doing this piece, um, I mean, first of all, Ben Patterson was an African-American artist. Um, and Ben Patterson writing a piece where the instructions are, please wash your face. To me, it's just like the concept of this piece is devastating. Like, it's funny to look at it. Well, what's, what's the concern? You know, it's, it's almost like, I don't want to talk about this piece. I, I have so many questions about like, oh, am I allowed to engage with this work as like a bearded, cisgendered, like straight white dude? And yet, when I look at this piece, it's transformative every time I see it. And to me, it's light, and I think it inspires this kind of joy and its lightness, just the physical objects of this little orange slice, and that there's a piece that's telling you that, to wash up now, but that also that it's a piece about race and it's a piece about power. How, how um, would you um, perform this piece? We're looking at the pieces of materials that would be used in the performance of the piece, but they themselves have not performed in the piece. We didn't use this score. To, also, I imagine if you did use this score, which is a towel and a piece of soap, you would destroy it. Not just now that it's older materials, but when you did it, you would actually destroy it, which is interesting. But so what we did is um, we had five people uh, on a stage. We each had a wash basin. They were all on the ground. They were all lit with a simple light. Uh, they were uniform. All of us were different ages and genders, um, and our skin is different shades. Uh, many of us were artists. Um, we came from, from different places of power in our organizations, from like curator to um, someone working in development to someone who is a young bass player uh, and composer. Um, and all of us sat and washed our faces uh, with just these simple lights on, and we amplified the sounds just so we could really hear it. We amplified the sounds of the water as we were washing our face. And we, we walked on stage together, we did the action, and then we stood up and we walked off stage together. And what Chris did that I also thought was really effective is bring out sound. So the sound of people turning on the wash basin, the sound of the water, the sound of turning on and off the little lights yeah. that you had. So there was a kind of sonic experience, which I thought was really yeah. interesting. Yeah, well, we, you know, because we're looking from the perspective of the LA Phil, so many of these pieces we're looking at as pieces of music, not just pieces of art mm -hmm. or pieces of intermedia. And so 
always were asking the question, um, and Chad Smith, the LFL, kept kept asking me, but what does it sound like? And then always the question, but is it music? And we're mm-hmm. putting it in the sphere of music. We're doing it as music. Mm-hmm. But so suddenly we have to really think about what it sounds like. And so thus we thought we'd amplify it. We were just finishing talking about Ben Patterson's Please Wash Your Face. In the next anthology, I guess you'd call it that, arrangement of musical scores, it's called Water Yam, arranged by George Brecht. Tell us about it and its place among all these other works by Flexus artists. Um, first of all, the box that contains these instruction cards. And you'll notice that they're all different sizes. Some are very small. They're all white cards with black typeface on them. They are not really instructions for the most part. They're more accounting for events that could occur. And the box that contains them all was again designed by George Machunas, so it in itself is really a work of art. Um, I would just call attention to this one, Timetable Music, and to Drip Music. This was published by Lamont Young in an anthology, and it's one that I think George Brecht worked on with Cage, or during Cage's class. It was composed in 1959, in the summer of 1959. It's entitled Timetable Music for Performance in a Railway Station. The performers enter a railway station and obtain timetables. They stand or seat themselves so as to be visible to each other, and when ready, start their stopwatches simultaneously. Each performer interprets the table time indications in terms of minutes and seconds. For example, 7.16 equals 7 minutes and 16 seconds. He selects one time by chance to determine the total duration of his performing. This done, he selects one row or column and makes a sound at all points where the table times within that row or column fall within the total duration of his performance. So this is sounding very much like early Lamont Young, and it's about the same time as Lamont Young. Tell us about George Brecht and his role in Fluxus. George Brecht, um, I would say, was one of the most important Fluxus artists, uh, influential. And he was in New York? He was in New York, and he was also, I think, overseas. Uh, George Brecht was a student of Cage's, and I think one of Cage's, you know, prouder moments as far as a student at the new school for social research when Cage was teaching his experimental composition class. And this water yam, Brecht did several versions. Uh, A project at the Getty Research Institute, which Jim, I'm sure you know, about, called The Score, or at least a short title. At the Getty Research Institute, one of the uh, scholars contributing, Natalie Heron, has done very, very careful study of the contents of water yam. After all, it's called water yam, which are not necessarily words that one would put together, but there's a lot about water. So what I did for our display is pull out some of the water-related events, because I think that makes it very interesting. There are also threes, three yellow events, three piano pieces, and then two vehicle events. I love the vehicle events. Start, Start, stop. stop. Start and stop. Yes. This is it all. Yeah. (laughs) Three aqueous events. But the most famous and widely quoted is the one that Jim refers to uh, as well, uh, drip music or drip event, which simply says, for single or multiple performance, a source of dripping water and an empty vessel are arranged so that the water falls 
into the vessel. Second version, dripping. George Brecht. <laughs> what did you say? That silence was very good. I think we should leave that silent. So we, we had this on the festival, and um, an artist um, who's performed many times at the Getty, actually, Chris Kalmeyer, who's a Los Angeles artist, mm. performed the piece out in, on the corner of Grand and First, right outside Disney Concert Hall. And there was this kind of giant setup with all these different vessels dripping one to another. He had like a big kind of wooden, almost a coat rack, where he, he had like washed a cloth and then hung the cloth so it would drip into a basin. He went up a ladder and was pouring. Um, and I think he also was interpreting the piece. I know he did it for three different nights. And on one of the nights, he was also like simultaneously eating a score of Beethoven. For sure, that's not in the piece. So Are these things to be pulled out by chance? I mean, just randomly pulled out well, of the box? He, he only the did this one, things? the drip music. Uh-huh. Um, but if you were to perform... Water Yam, mm-hmm. as arranged by George Breck, mm-hmm. it would suggest that the instruction sheets are mm-hmm. arranged by George Breck so that you would pull them out in order as he arranged them. Well, see, that's very interesting mm-hmm. because, I mean, this really takes us to a new place as far as instructions. Because here we have instructions with the Lamont Young pieces, you know, text pieces, word pieces. We have still something like instructions. Here, all of these mm. are instructions. And mm. you could do one card or you could do, a lot of times people do just do drip music. That's become very common, well, not common, but more more widely performed, let's say. But one could move in really any direction from one card to multiple cards. Mm. And, you know, I've, I've never thought of it like a deck, like the idea that you might draw one and then perform that one. Um, maybe it's because they're all different sizes. So like, you know, like if all the cards in a deck are slightly different sizes, then you would know which one are the aces or something, you know. But I've always thought, oh, well, my favorite is X. Like there's one in here which is not out on the table, but it's one of my favorite pieces ever. And it says egg, at least one egg. <laughs> and I feel like that to me makes me so happy. It's just exquisite. There's this artist, uh, Caroline Shaw, who writes uh, mm-hmm. kind of post-minimal music. Every day she posts a picture of her soft-boiled egg on Instagram. Every day. And very often she'll figure out whether it's a five and a half minute or a six and a half minute egg. Mm -hmm. And she'll time it with one of her friend's songs playing on her computer. So she'll say, oh, well, this piece of Gabe Cahane's is six minutes and 19 seconds. So this is a six minute and 19 second egg. And then she shows how it went. And every day I'm like, you know, you're doing this George Breck piece, at least one egg. But... I also do think the look of these cards is very important Mm. and very intentional in terms of its beauty, Mm -hmm. in terms of the effect of the black on white, uh, in terms of the varied sizes of these. I think there's a lot that one could say about the physical. um, And I think it's interesting that he writes arranged by George Breck rather than by George Breck. Now, we've come a long way from John Cage to George Brecht and uh, in seemingly a narrow vein, but within which there seems to be infinite possibility. And that might define this period of time, which we're looking at about five or six years worth of musical composition by half a dozen artists, all of whom know each other, some of whom work closely together. And now they're the heart and center of Chris's, of your, your celebration of Fluxus at the LA Phil. So how has it been going for you at the LA Phil? 
Uh, it's been going really well. I mean, you know, we, we've endeavored so many pieces this year. Uh, the festival began about six months prior to the start of the festival at the press release where we did one of Yoko's pieces, um, which is called Voice Piece for Soprano, which instructs all, what well, doesn't instruct, instruct all present. We did it with all present, screaming against the wind and then screaming against the wall and then screaming against the sky. And the festival began now almost over, over a year ago, and it's going until June. Um, we're learning a lot about what Fluxus does to an audience. And what I've noticed about doing this work, particularly in the sphere of classical music, which for me is a little bit more conservative than the sphere of contemporary art, but it's perhaps just because I'm not necessarily in the world of contemporary art. Um, but doing this work in the sphere of classical music, it's such a polemic. When we threw watermelons off the building for Ken Friedman's piece called Sonata for Melons and Gravity, there were people in the orchestra that were like, I don't want to play the concert tonight. How dare you waste this? Mm. When we crushed, waste, this. waste these watermelons. Waste the watermelons. People could have those. Uh, and that is a right on point of view. And the piece itself, to me, it's a joyous gesture, this thing of throwing something. Then it's a destructive gesture. And then it's a gesture of grief of this thing. You know, at least that's the way that I was experiencing it. And clearly the people in the orchestra, conceptually, it was making them grieve and then be furious. Mm -hmm. And how many pieces, like when you hear the Tchaikovsky Pathétique, does it make you grieve and then be furious? <laughs> no, it makes you feel something about music. And I, so these pieces, they really strike people in a very powerful way. Um, we did a piece on the same concert, a piece of Dick Higgins called The Thousand Symphonies. And you have to um, shoot holes in a score with automatic rifles and then spray paint through the holes to create layers of counterpoint. All these holes are on sheets of music, on big scores, manuscript, and that then the orchestra plays all of these graphics and uh, the paint that has gone through the holes made by the bullets. And there were people in the orchestra that sat out the concert. There were people that were deeply upset that we would do a piece that involved guns at all. There were people that said, you know, there was a shooting in Thousand Oaks last week. I think for that reason, we should not do this piece. And of course, my opinion was like, because there was a shooting in Thousand Oaks, also there's a shooting in America every day, um, we should do this piece. And yet I understand why it's painful. And so perhaps if you wanna not do it, that's reasonable, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so there's been a lot of grappling with concept in a way that's rare in classical music. And that's been really special. I feel like that for that organization and for the players and for myself as well, like there's been so much learning. Like this is the kind of work that causes a different type of mindfulness about um, why we do what we do and like what it means to make something and then make something in public. So I think that was beautifully put. And I wonder, Nancy, if you could tell us about how you think the Getty plays in this same field. That is, what contributions did the Getty make and what brings you two together today for the podcast? Um, the Getty's role was really to show the materials. The Getty Research Institute has extensive fluxus collections. One is the Jean Brown archive, and she was an American collector of surrealism, Dada, and fluxus. And it's an extensive collection of multiples and some works of art and books and artist books and so forth. And then the David Tudor archive, which also has important collections of fluxus. So our role was really to bring attention to the materials, to the objects, whether they be scores or books or manuscripts, and to inspire ideas for performance. 
And so we had a lot of meetings where Marsha Reed and I pulled materials. So there was a lot of looking at Ben Patterson, who's an artist, a composer really, mm -hmm. and musician mm -hmm. who hasn't been given the, the attention he deserves, and that's true of many of these artists. And then the other part, I think, for the Research Institute is, um, and I've noticed with the concerts, and I think this is important to bring in, is people are struggling with what is fluxus mean? And is cage fluxus? There's a lot of debate about definitions, so which the, is interesting. So the, so the questions we started on, we are still asking at the end of this podcast, huh. but let's close with one question that you can answer. What is the future of fluxus? I would argue that performances are very, very important because fluxus was about performance. However, I think those performances need to be kept very close to the original scores, manuscripts, and materials. And for me, uh, the future of Fluxus is all about mindfulness and about observing that we're performing all the time. And that the simple act of just like looking at one of these pieces of paper, these beautiful scores, and like thinking about picking it up, that that to me, if that is a piece, just like egg is a piece, suddenly life gets really interesting. It's like my therapist said, you know, the reason why you go to therapy is not to get fixed. It's to have your life be more interesting. <laughs> and so there's something about this work that it kind of can do that. And I think if we observe the world and, and the way that we engage in the world with this kind of mindfulness, I feel like that is somehow what Fluxus has taught me in kind of a central way. It's a great place to end. So Chris Roundtree, Nancy Perloff, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Upcoming Fluxus performances with the LA Philharmonic include Fluxus Piano Pieces on May 2nd to 5th, Ragnar Charchinson's Bliss on May 25th, David Lang's Crowd Out on June 1st, and as a closing event on June 1st, Fluxus at noon to midnight. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Art and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music. For photos, transcripts, and other resources, visit getty.edu slash podcasts. Thanks for listening.